Hello, all you beautiful misfits and rejects. In today's episode, I sat down with Chris Shanks. Chris is a friend of mine who lives over on Ometepe and has done a lot of really cool things over the years with permaculture and just volunteer tourism and really helping people understand that you can make a really beautiful life for yourself in the way you want um, on an island that is probably one of the most powerful places I've ever been. And so really hope you enjoy this episode. He is a very smart dude, has a lot of knowledge on a lot of things, just life in general and just how he's designed it. He gives us a great trail of breadcrumbs to follow if you do want to kind of go through that door and try to shape that type of lifestyle for yourself. Please remember that you can support Misfits and Rejects on Patreon. If you like Misfits and Rejects and you want to help out Misfits and Rejects and keep it going, you can donate a monthly reoccurring fee as little as a dollar, as high as you want to go. And it really just helps keep this project going. So if you like it and you want to participate in helping it out, please remember that you can donate on Patreon, which is www.patreon.com backslash, backslash Misfits and Rejects. So again, thank you for listening. I always appreciate you coming to the table and listening and hearing what all these beautiful people have to say. I hope they inspire you to maybe take that first step and and make that life for yourself that you've always dreamed of. So sit back, enjoy, and here's Chris Shanks. Welcome to Misfits and Rejects, a podcast about the lifestyle design of expatriates, travelers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. I'm your host, Chapin Cruder. Enjoy. I didn't fit in America. With cocaine, there's just always too many guns and too many bad attitudes. I quit the limiting stories. Really try to overcome that fear. And right there, for any of your listeners, a lot of what I was to do in the rest of my life was formulated by the fact I just went and did it. Welcome to another episode of Misfits and Rejects. Today I am joined by my good friend Chris Shank, somebody who has been in Nicaragua for a long time. We've shared a lot of cool moments together, but yet I don't know a lot about you, except for the, the little conversations we do have, and I know the hustle that you do have as well, where you're always moving pieces around the board and you're always trying to be responsible in the way things grow around you with the community and just the investments that you have here in Nicaragua. And it's really cool because I just see that you have grown in a lot of cool ways over the years and you have made a very sustainable life for yourself here that a lot of people have not. <laughs> you know, you've seen people come and go but you've been here, you've stuck around, you've done some really cool stuff. So I'm excited to let the audience kind of in on, on what you've done and, and how you've done it. So welcome to the show, dude. All right. Thank you for having me, Chapin. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, maybe just give the audience a little bit of your background, please. Like where you've come from, how you grew up. Yeah, I'm uh, 41 years old, New northern New Jersey, born and bred, um, tested in the cities, uh, city of New York, um, educated in New England. Uh, mountain boy, ocean boy, and um, first came to Central America um, just after the millennium turned and have uh, been in love with Central American culture and climate and forests for just over 20 years. And I've spent a chunk of my life every year since the year 2000 uh, here in Central America, first in Costa Rica and uh, in the last 16 years here in uh, Nicaragua. And you, your education was in ecology, is that correct? Or Actually, my degree is in phenomenological philosophy, which if you ask me to define that, I cannot tell you anymore because I've forgotten that. 
with a lot of Tonyas and Victorias and other things involved in between then and now. But um, yeah, my, my degree is actually in comparative religion um, and phenomenological philosophy. My training, though, in ecology and reforestation, natural resources management, actually comes from an association with a group of gentlemen from university who were willing to share their training with me when I was in school. And that training, that moment of sharing came through a love of the great outdoors, uh, specifically climbing, hiking, ice climbing, mountaineering. I went to the University of Vermont, which is a real mecca for a lot of those things, and uh, found a group of friends, of which I'm still friends with many of those folks today, formed a network with those gentlemen, um, which persists to this day. And um, that was all born in our, our love of being outdoors. That's really cool, man. I, what was your childhood like? I mean, were your parents taking you camping? Did they take you on trips? Like, yeah, when I when I was a kid, my folks were pretty like run of the mill, you know, white folk from the burbs. <laughs> um, my father uh, is a second generation, or excuse me, first generation American. His his parents were immigrants. Uh, my mother's folks were have been in the states for a long, long time. They're they're Dutch descended. Uh, we went on some family vacations as a kid. We got out to the West, um, being East Coasters. It was a wonderful thing to be able to see the Pacific Ocean and the Redwoods and, you know, the Grand Canyon and things like that. But um, my my love of the outdoors and, and kind of the, not just the big spaces, but being able to engage with the small parts and seeing how animals and trees and plants and other things interact, that was all kind of from me. Um, I was super fortunate. My, my folks um, growing up had a little place on a lake that we shared with a bunch of other families. And so I was surrounded by reptiles and amphibians. And I used to walk to school through the woods. So I was kind of constantly, though being a Jersey kid, uh, you know, exposed to the natural world on a daily basis. And uh, I'm really thankful for that to this day. Did you ever do international travel with your folks or would that come on your own? We didn't do that until my late teens. We just did a couple a couple trips together. And then um, I actually decided not to go abroad. Uh, fell in love with a beautiful girl. These things happen. Um, it wasn't until my sister actually went abroad when I was about 19 or, excuse me, 21 or 22 that I, I got out to Europe and got to see a little bit more of the world. And once I had seen that, I was quickly on my way to uh, Costa Rica and I haven't looked back since. Why Costa Rica? Um, well, for a kid from New Jersey at 21, who at that time had a passion for surfing, a couple friends who had the same, Costa Rica was a mecca for surf back in 1999, you know, 2000. It was kind of the place to go. It was still raw like Nicaragua is, and uh, yeah, that's where we ended up. One of us actually thought Costa Rica was an island. Uh, that wasn't me, by the way. <laughs> I am not uh, geographically inept, but, um, and his name will not be mentioned in this podcast. Fair enough. But uh, we'll carry on. Okay. Um, when you did arrive in Costa Rica, I mean, with the amount of diverse plants and animals, I mean, you must have just been in heaven. Yeah, I was blown away. Um, it was actually my first... My exposure to the ecologies that we moved through in our first month in Costa Rica as we crisscrossed east to west a couple of times uh, throughout the country blew my mind. And it, it actually 
for me, it crystallized something that I had been moving around in my head for about a year. As I was coming out of university with the learning that I had, I felt like I was deeply ensconced in my ivory tower and I didn't have a practical way to apply the things I had learned in school as a student of philosophy and religion and later ecology. And um, when I was in Costa Rica, I, I realized something that I saw then and I see now in many places, which was that I saw beauty in the land, but I also saw a degradation in the land that was caused by human habitation. And there was a relationship there which was abusive. And it wasn't abusive because those people were bad or ignorant or uneducated. Nothing to do with that. It had to do simply with their poverty and the fact that if they didn't take more than they could give back to the land, they couldn't survive. Um, no one would save a tree to not feed their kid. This is how the world works, unfortunately, and fortunately, because this is a good part of the human spirit. Um, when I saw that there was potential to work with the land and work with the people so that those two could be in balance, it inspired me to start working with different ways to think about how to apply systems thinking and later permaculture design to how to fix the environment and work with the people uh, around that environment. That's really cool. And then with the relationships you had developed in college, a lot of those topics had obviously been brought up or was, was that then you diving into understanding those systems and relationships and how to make them more sustainable? Yeah. So for me, for in university, I got exposed to a number of ideas inside of those realms, but it wasn't until I got to Costa Rica that I was able to have the opportunity to take the deep dive and also to be afforded the time to do some of the study in order to not just arrive at that type of thinking intellectually, but to have that kind of uh, experiential um, experiential moment where I could realize that you could change things um, by applying some good thinking and, and logic to that. So then what was like that um, kind of experience you just described? Were you like with another group, a group that was down there working on these types of systems or so I started it's a good question so what I started to do is I started to travel to different farms and trade my time um, for learning like as a wolf were you woofing yeah I was woofing okay uh, and then later I was apprenticing uh, learning specific skills and I did that for a number of years I did that pretty much all throughout my 20s from about 23 to about 29 uh, I did that in Central America uh, in Europe uh, in the States as well. That's really interesting. And then, so because you're trading your time, basically volunteering, how right. are you, how are you getting from point A to point B with sounds like not much money? Yeah, not much money. I, um, I lived, you know, I lived below the poverty line from about 22 until about 30. I made less than $10,000 a year. I worked only maybe three or four months of the year, but very intensely. And then I lived incredibly frugally the rest of the time, both by living here and um, benefiting from the low cost of living, but also by living in the U.S. and then trading my time for room and board and also time to earn some money and then just saving and being very parsimonious with money. 
What were you doing for those three months when you were trying to make money? Uh, I was working as a carpenter okay. and a stonemason. So I was working in the trades. Uh, and I learned a lot of skills, a lot of skills that I've brought to um, construction, um, general contracting, and project management uh, you know, to this day. <clears throat> when did you start developing, um, I guess, the dream or the idea to create what you created out on Ometepe? Can you kind of give the audience an idea of what you created out on Ometepe Island in Nicaragua? Yeah, happily. Um, you know, what, what we've created out on Ometepe started back in, call it 2003. We started a nonprofit NGO called Project Bonafide. Um, it's on a originally on a forty, little bit, a little over forty acre property, divided in two pieces with a property in between it, and um, we put into we implemented a plan for what we call agricultural reforestation. So we worked with an area that had been mostly farmed in cattle and a monoculture of plantain, which is the main commercial crop on Ometepe Island in Nicaragua. And we transitioned that over to many, many acres, thousands and thousands of fruit trees of productive perennial agriculture. So agriculture where we don't have to plant things year to year, where we, every year we put money in, so to speak, um, quote unquote, we get more out of our investment. You know, when you plant a tree, unlike many investments, your ROI grows year to year and it actually keeps getting bigger. And depending on the species of tree that you plant, that could be for a century, like an olive tree or a date tree or something like that. And um, our intention from the beginning was to create uh, a system of agriculture that would produce food from trees that would mimic the forest, that would invite animals, wild animals, back to the place that would allow us to cultivate domestic animals and that would allow us to host people from around the world to teach them a little bit about what we learned in the process of doing that, uh, which is what we've been doing for the last uh, 13 years. Why Ometepe? Why did you choose that spot? Like, how did you come from the Costa Rica experience woofing around the world to ah. being like, Ometepe is where we got to do this? Yeah. People ask me this question all the time. Why did you go from a couple years in Costa Rica to Ometepe? And um, the short answer is always, I didn't choose Ometepe. Ometepe chose me. Um, The slightly longer answer is that while woofing, through pure serendipity, I met a guy who I became friends with. We were working together, digging out an old tomato bed, got into you know, a good conversation, making some jokes, digging, talking story, like they say in Hawaii, became fast friends. And after working together for a month, went our separate ways, stayed in touch. These were the hotmail days way back when, uh, he wandered up here. He'd wandered up here with his brother years before and kind of rediscovered Ometepe in, uh, 2001, did a quick deal and bought some land here and then invited a bunch of people to come and help him out. And I was one of the few people that signed up and I was here in November of 2002 and been here ever since. That's interesting. Kind of like how I arrived with Jack, my partner invited me down to start the surf camp here in Higante. Um, with, with that entity out on Ometepe that you started and have been working on the last 13 years, what do, can people expect when they come visit? Like what is, what is, the daily routine like? I mean, is it like a hostile environment? Is it like, um, 
It's a, a volunteer program. Okay. Yeah. So we, we kind of have, there's three different ways to experience our place, Project Bonafide. One is as a volunteer where people come and they work about four hours a day, five days a week, weekends off, and they pay a little bit of money so they, we can help cover their food and their things like that. We prepare food for them. Uh, the second way that people experience that is, um, uh, you know, what they call volunteerism groups, which are groups that often are young people just out of college uh, on their gap years that are trying to learn a bit about a different culture than where they're from, trying to do some service learning um, and are looking for some guidance in that. Uh, we started a community center in our village, so we have a lot of contacts with, with service in our community. Um, so that's another way that people will come for a week or two. That's a much more guided experience. They often come with instructors who are part of a program that they're part of, and we're just one of a handful of programs they might experience in Nicaragua or Central America. And then the third way is that people come to us to study for the last 15 years with our, our permaculture design courses, which are an international uh, system of internationally recognized courses that are done in over a hundred countries. They're two week long courses they are extremely intensive. They're kind of quote unquote college level curricula, but they're experiential. People get their hands dirty. They learn how to do with their hands, not just with their heads. And that um, comes with a certification where people learn how to design sustainably the environment that they want to create and that the life that they want to create, which is a big part of what we're getting after in this podcast. Um, so though, yeah, those are the three ways that people engage us. Did you create the curriculum for these courses that people come out and engage in? The, the permaculture, so I did not create the curriculum. The curriculum was created uh, back in the early 1980s by David Holmgren and Bill Mollison, who were the co-founders of the permaculture design movement. Um, you know, the course now is taught in over 100 countries by thousands of instructors in dozens of languages. We have tailored the curricula for the climate we work in, for the clientele that we work with, for our students, and also to keep that curricula um, modern and current to how things are understood scientifically and in fields of, of sustainable design as those fields evolve over time. Man, can we talk about Ometepe? And because and, you're just such a wealth of knowledge, and <laughs> we have these conversations at the bar. I'm always just fascinated because. Ometepe is so unique. Can you give the audience a little understanding of the island and what makes it so unique to Central America, even the world? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what, does ma what makes Ometepe unique to Central America and to the world? I mean, one of the first things would be that Ometepe is the largest island in a freshwater lake on the entire planet. And then it is inside of a lake that is arguably the 10th or 16th largest, depending on which Wikipedia page you look at. It's a big fucking lake. Um, it's a lake that in itself holds uh, autochthonous or, or, you know, species that are only occurring in that particular body of water. And then Ometepe itself has at least four or five, and I'm sure many more, though they have not been discovered by, you know, science, um, species that only exist on the island, including a parrot, an orchid, um, and a tree. Uh, the island is, is two volcanoes which are connected via a wetland which really 
only connects the two volcanoes via the road and the beach. The rest of it is just under the waterline. And there you'll find um, incredible marshland birds, um, hunting birds, monkeys, caimans, safe, nice, friendly little caimans, but caimans nevertheless. And then when you move between those, that space between the two volcanoes, you're either engaging the dry tropical forest on the conception side, which is typical to this part of Nicaragua, though as you go up in elevation to well over a mile or about 1,600 meters above sea level, you get into areas that as you get to the top of conception, the top of a live volcano, feel very much like a mountain. Uh, if you were in Colorado or the Alps or somewhere, you get very much the big mountain feel of, of the changing of winds and the exposure. Whereas if you're on the other side, if you're on Madaris, where, where I live, you are in a cloud forest when you get above 600, 700 meters, 2,000, 2,400 feet. And now you are in a place which is Technically speaking, from an ecological perspective, one of the most diverse cradles of biodiversity we can find on the planet. Those spaces that exist in the cloud forest environment, because they are wet all the time, water being the cradle of all life, they are the places where we find the highest um, amount of biodiversity in a square meter or a square kilometer or a square mile or a square yard, however you want to measure it. These are the highest concentrations of biodiversity on the planet. And to have two very different environments existing 10 miles or 16 kilometers between each other is extremely uncommon. And when you add all that up together, you get a place that is ecologically unique, but you also get a place that is historically unique. If, if you look back in the records of which are somewhat scant, you realize that Ometepe was a place between places for cultures where ideas and medicines and history was interchanged between people. And if you look at a larger scale at the ecology of Ometepe, you see that Ometepe on the cloud forest side borrows from the more Amazonian, more southerly climates that go all the way down through Costa Rica, Panama, into the Amazon. And then if you look at Conception, you're borrowing from the more dry tropical forest, which stretches all the way up to southern Mexico. So you're in a space between spaces, you know, what we call an edge, which is very important in permaculture, a liminal space. And uh, it's a place that is surrounded by water and full of fire. And uh, to this day, after 15 years, it still haunts my dreams and, and not in a negative way, but it is a powerful place, and uh, it's one that rarely does not leave an impression on people that visit there. Yeah, I'll tell you what, like, not to get too esoteric, but, like, the energy on that island is insane, dude. Like, I love it out there. Like, here, it's, here. It's <laughs> wild, man, and it's just beautiful, and always so much to learn, places to explore. And for me, like, kind of sad that we don't know much about the people and the history of it. Like, there's so many old remnants of pots and things that like we don't really know much about am i correct like you, yeah. you research it more than me i've 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 tried to delve into this a number of times and 
I've been fortunate enough to run into some lecturers, uh, Nicaraguan um, archaeologists, as well as foreign uh, researchers. Um, to your point, Chapin, there, there still is a lot of, there's a lot more unknowns than there are knowns. Uh, we, we don't really understand any of the stone carvings that exist, of which there are thousands. Um, you know, we know a bit about the Chorotegas and the Nahual who came, you know, later, who were the, the cultivators of cacao. We know a bit more about them. We know quite a bit about the Nahual that came from Mexico. The Chortegas, who are more or less indigenous to what is now Nicaragua, we don't know much about them. We don't know much about how they built. We don't know much about their language, or what they believed. Um, it's 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 very scant and, and, and quite sad. It's one of the first things that when I work professionally consulting, trying to understand a piece of land for a client, I often will go to the indigenous traditions and I will go to that history to try to understand the history of land. And it's one of the first places I went to 15 years ago, but I wasn't able to get very far. Hmm. I just, yeah, I, you said something that interests me, consulting on land. What does that mean? What do you do for people when you consult on land? So I, I've built a life here in Nicaragua where I've diversified the kind of work that I'm able to do in the country, as well as I've created a few different jobs for myself where I'm able to work anywhere, whether it's here or out of the country. Uh, one of those occupations is um, land planning and evaluation. So I help people evaluate from an economic as well as a development feasibility uh, how to work with land. And then I also help generate ideas about what to do with that land. Um, some of that is business-based and, and, and is business coaching. Uh, originally, it started with land repair with helping people make good ideas about how to do good things for the land, which I believe will come back to you economically, but also more importantly, will be good for the local ecology, will help bring back springs, restore wildlife corridors, and so forth. Is that like a word of mouth kind of business model or do you have like a website? Because that's super interesting to me. So for me, it's mostly been word of mouth. Um, as you know, locally I've worked to try to help people here in Nicaragua develop land. I've also been a developer myself, so I've been doing less of that the last five years. Um, I never built a website. In the first five years I did this work, uh, it was mostly word of mouth. Okay. Um, I'm about to go back into it, so I'm about to actually get that website built. But you know, a person who does good work can stand behind you know, that work. And usually in a place like Nicaragua and Costa Rica, where I've worked as well, good, you know, good vibes gets around quick. No doubt. Just be a good person, man. Like, That's right. It's not yeah. a hard business yeah. model. Do what you said you're going to do and it'll be all good. Show up on time. Yeah. But I do like the way you diversified entrepreneurially here in Nicaragua. Like a lot of us come with this idea and we put all our eggs in one basket and in this environment, it's really hard a lot of times just to make one, 10 ideas get off the ground. Yeah. So the fact that you've done it and successfully in different areas is really interesting to me. I'd like to circle back to that in a second because yeah. I'd like to touch upon 
how you push yourself. You push yourself not only mentally, your wealth of knowledge, physically as well. And going back to Ometepe, you know, you're in the ultra marathons, and, yeah. you've, and you've done a lot with the ultra marathon that happens on Ometepe. That's right. Can you talk to me and the audience a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. So I, um, you know, when I hit 35, I was an impotent alcoholic. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you, you know, you, man or woman gets to that age, they often say, you know, some people will find running and they'll find peace in long distance running. Um, and that meditation of that gives someone time to think through the next moves in life. And, uh, I was definitely one of those people. I'd always been kind of centered around fitness and hiking and climbing and surfing, swimming, all, all the different pursuits I've had throughout my adult and, and teen life. Um, I decided I was going to get into running and, uh, started with short distances and, started running in this tropical, humid environment, which is about twice as hard as anywhere else, <laughs> uh, unless you're living at elevation, and even then you get used to that. But um, part of that was being inspired by a, a series of ultra marathons and uh, obstacle course racing called the Survival Run. It's a series that's run by um, a brand called Fuego y Agua, started by a couple of gentlemen from the States, primarily this guy named uh, Josue Stevens, who's a good buddy of mine. And um, they started doing ultra marathons up and down the volcanoes, as well as obstacle challenges and ultra marathons put together into their branded Suffer Fest, which is 24 plus hours called the Survival Run, of which I finished um, in second place about three years ago. Congratulations, man. That's really impressive. Second place in the whole, like in your age group or the whole thing? The whole thing. Wow, dude. Well, only three people finish. So, you know, wow. if you come in after the first guy, uh -huh. then they, you get to be second. What? How many people, <laughs> how many people entered though? Like 55. Wow. And only three finished. And only three finished. How'd you train for that? Uh, I mean, you had the home court advantage though, dude. You are on the island. I, I 100% had the home court, court advantage and I always, uh, I always cop to that. Um, you know, I trained with the philosophy that you um, will often hear expressed by special forces militaries around the world, which is you train like you fight. So my, my approach was, well, every survival run previous to this, people have gone up and down the volcanoes multiple times. So I'm going to go up and down the volcanoes as much as possible. And uh, forced myself to hike both volcanoes in a day and run in between. And I looked at the patterns. You know, I'm someone who studies patterns. So I looked at the patterns of what people were asked to do in previous years. And I did those things. And I put my body through that. And, you know, my takeaways were train like you quote unquote fight. Um, train hard, but rest. Uh, be good to yourself and um, eat well and do a lot of yoga. What do you think people find? I mean, what did you find in these extremely sounding, extreme sounding, very horribly feeling like <laughs> things? Like, what is what's the pleasure in that? Like, what do you get out of it? Yeah, there, there's not a lot of pleasure. It's I think um, it's a very good question. You know, what do people get out of doing ultra marathons, or what do they get out of doing some of these long, you know, multiple hour, even multiple day? test pieces against the human body. I think this comes down, I personally think 
it comes down to the fact that most people from the West, apart from the men and women that serve in the military and are called to active combat duty, most of us are never put in a position where we have to ask more of ourselves than we're willing to give when we're actually put in a position where there's no way out. And I think that there is great value in pushing yourself 10 times farther than you thought was possible by telling yourself that you actually cannot give up because you're not given the option to give up. Most of us given the option will quit. Most of us. This is a human thing. doesn't matter what color you are or what religion you are. It's, it's, this is a human thing. It's part of human nature. And I took two years of my life to dedicate cultivating the mind space where failure was not an option, where I would put myself in a position where it wasn't about the body, it's about the mind. And uh, I learned an enormous amount of things from that experience. Can you say that like crafting your lifestyle here is kind of that's helped enable you to push through some of these like ups and down moments that we all have. Um, that headspace of just like, this is the life and the lifestyle that I want to lead and I'm not going back. You know? Yeah. Would, would I say that living in, in a place like Nicaragua, would that help cultivate that mind space that I took into obstacle course and ultra running? And I would, I would agree with that. I would say that certainly, I mean, uh, a business partner and I always say that everything in Nicaragua is three times as hard which is relatively true. But at the same time, the lifestyle, the way of living, the ownership of how I get to live here, all of that is worth far more than the mundane things that are three times as hard. So that when you add it up on a balance sheet, even if it's three times as hard to get groceries or three times as hard as to get a plumbing fitting, who cares? because it's 10 times better to be here for all the other things on the positive end. Yeah, it's beautifully said. I agree totally. Like I wouldn't trade it for the world. Um, going back, you know, you mentioned a business partner, the various different entities that you have diversified with down here. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an idea of what those are and, and how they're helping sustain this lifestyle for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd be happy to share about the different ways and the different side hustles. Yeah, that right. I've created yeah. or created with others to sustain this lifestyle. And actually, in the last few years, as I've found success through perseverance and luck um, to actually give me time not only to be here, but to explore other parts of the world and, and to enrich my learning and um, meet people and, 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 and learn new skills. I'm a lifelong learner, and that's something I've always been hungry for. So. You know, I started out in the sustainable agriculture reforestation space here uh, in, in building up a farm and building up Project Bonafide and having to bring electricity to a place. I learned renewable energy in, in learning how to reforest a place. I learned plant horticulture in having to build buildings to build our farm. I learned construction. Uh, and having to water our plants and bring water for ourselves for drinking and showering, I learned plumbing and irrigation. Um, I built a whole bunch of skill sets in my 20s, which allowed me to build skill sets I could later sell um, as I became not a master, but an, more of an expert, certainly someone who's experienced. And what I started with was land consulting 
I built up a farm over many years. People in my classes that, that had studied with me and other people who were senior to me who could share their experiences started asking for help. I started offering that. I built a business around consulting. That business, that business grew and started to be greatly influenced by the beginning of boutique green hotels here in Nicaragua. My name got around about building what we'd built on Ometepe, and I was asked to help build the Hikaro Hotel off the coast of the Isletas, uh, off the coast of Granada. Um, at that same time, those projects needed plants, so I started a nursery. Uh, I started selling those plants uh, up and down the coast throughout Nicaragua. You know, that was my next side hustle. That was side hustle number two. First, it was consulting. Then it was side hustle two. It was selling plants that I'd learned how to grow. You know, once you have seeds coming off of trees, you just put them in bags and voila, you get plants again. Um, as I became better in my skill sets around sustainability, people started asking me about teaching. So I started to teach. That was something I was able to do at my place on Ometepe. But in some instances, I was asked to go and, and to share what I'd learned in the Bahamas, in Hawaii, in Costa Rica, in parts of the US. That was side hustle number three. Um, as I worked in consulting in kind of the green hospitality space, first in Nicaragua and then elsewhere, I started to learn a lot about the ins and outs of running hospitality investments intelligently. Uh, the food part, the bar part, the overall operations of hotels. And as I got more involved with people who ran these hotels, spending time with them, learning from their experiences, both what they did well and also conversely what they didn't do well and, their, and the candid nature of those conversations, I thought that I saw a niche on Ometepe to take what we had grown up on our farm and created a place that's been reforested, that's covered with trees, that produces food and creates habitat for wildlife. I thought that we could find an opportunity to build a hospitality component inside of that. Side hustle number four, that was starting to rent my own house and building a guest house, which I thought would be a modest addition to my income and was all, would also be a way to attract people who wanted to learn about sustainability and add the economic part. Um, but then that actually blew up. And, and you've kind of uh, grown that aspect because you now have multiple Airbnbs, yep. right, around Nicaragua that you kind of maintain and run and, and also one in France, I believe. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Know, like you're kind of growing that aspect of the business as well, right? Yeah. I've, you know, I, I'm slightly obsessive person. So I've, I've gone through a number of what I would call phase shifts in my life where for my late teens and most of my twenties, I was obsessed with sustainability and design and horticulture and natural construction and so forth and so on, all that kind of embodied inside of permaculture design. In my early 30s, I was obsessed with kind of develop, developing properties with a hospitality component that would allow the vast majority of that property to not be developed. So conservation through economic investment. Most of what which I did was with majority partners and most of those investments failed in some way or another. And I learned a really important piece from that, which was if you're going to do something, if you're going to live your dream, it needs to be your fucking dream and you need to own it. 
which doesn't need to be, mean you need to be a selfish motherfucker and you don't need to be arrogant about it, but you need to be in control of it. doesn't mean you don't need to have partners, but you need to have a say. Uh, when you're a minority partner, um, you have no say and you have to go along with everyone else. Um, and if there is a minority or a few minority partners and one large majority partner, you're pretty much along for the ride. And even though there can be partnership and influence on decision-making, that person or persons who hold the majority will always ultimately make the decision. And if you look at your balance sheet of decisions where you would have zigged when they zagged, and you look at the fact that if you had done or they had done what you would have done and you would be successful now, that's time to back away. Right. And that's what I did. Um, I got involved and I, I did one of the things that we do in permaculture, which we call start small. I started with my own home because I was between sites in Nicaragua. I was not there most of the time. I said, oh, I learned about Airbnb. I started to put that on Airbnb, started to make a little bit of money, just a little bit of side hustle, a little bit of beer money, nice dinner once in a while. I held a building course, built a timber frame. It took me a couple years to build my first building. I built it with no debt. When I had money, I built it. When I didn't have money, I didn't build it. Once that got up, I went from one property to actually having three within about a year. Uh, and I had different, what we call um, room qualities. So I had one that was would rent for a fairly good price, one that was kind of middle of the road, and one that was for more backpackers. So I diversified my market. And in doing so, I was often full. And once I had a year of data from, from renting on Airbnb and, and bookings, I was able to see when we make money, when we don't make money, and then put good business sense into putting a construction start and stop time to expansion. Then knowing when I could use some credit that I'd built up, intelligently take on debt, leverage credit card debt, unfortunately, because it's hard to borrow money in a place like Nicaragua, but do that intelligently so that the credit card companies don't own you, but actually so that you can kind of do some owning on your own, so to speak. Right. And in doing that, I was able to expand my business from one room to three rooms to eight rooms and now moving to uh, 12 in the next um, couple months. So and, cool, uh, dude. It's been great. Um, and then, of course, that's all on Ometepe. Um, that's a business we call Selvista Guest Houses. And uh, at the same time, I had a friend and a mentor taught me a little bit about the ins and outs of Airbnb business. And then we started a uh, beach house rental business here in Playa Redonda next to Playa Gigante. And uh, we have a couple beach houses here that we rent, two, three bedroom beach houses, beautiful ocean views, lots of privacy. And um, that actually evolved last summer into doing the same thing in Paris, France, and just trying to use the Airbnb platform to do what I call bootstrap your economic position. Um, and, and we do that in such a way where you don't need to have enormous amounts of capital where you are forced to go out there, put that money on the line, and buy a property outright or buy a property with so much down and then are, are saddled with a mortgage, but actually you can go out and lease a property or two and then your profit will be what you make between paying 
person you're leasing from and your bills and what you make, you know, from your renters. A little arbitrage. Correct. That's really cool, man. I mean, I love the little breadcrumb trail you left throughout this whole conversation of how you did it, you know, and it's really clear and, and beautiful and, and I think unique in its own way because a lot of people come, a lot of people go, a lot of people focus on one aspect of what they think is going to be the next big thing and then lose sight of all the other opportunities that are around them. Mm-hmm. And you see it now, you know, with the political situation we're going through right now that people who put all their eggs in the tourist basket you know, we're taking a big fist up the ass right now. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 um, absolutely. But I mean, whatever, like we all have gone through the ups and downs and, yes. and we'll, we'll come out on the other side. But, you know, for the individual listening right now who connects with your story, who wants to try something new, you know, what could you tell them to maybe inspire them to maybe go out there, swing the bat and, and, and design that life that they're kind of thinking would be a cool lifestyle for themselves? Well... I can, I'll leave it with a few things here. One is that, well, there's a number. I'll, I'll share a few sayings. One is that um, there's only, you only get half of one of the sayings we hear the most when we talk about things and things in economy. Everyone knows the saying in English, you get what you pay for. There's only half of that saying. The other half of that saying, which almost no one ever tells you, is you also get what you don't pay for. So quality is an important thing. Creating quality in your life, creating quality in the products that you create is extremely important. That, that creates a situation where clients come back, whether it's tourism, whether it's craft, whether it's consulting work, you need to give people what they pay for and you need to invest in things that are worth investing in, invest in quality. The other thing is that a lot of us We'll chase after the next best thing, but we'll be a little bit behind the time. And what I mean is that if you've heard about a place like Playa Gigante, um, then it's probably too late. You know, go out there and find the places that you haven't heard about. Go put yourself in a position where you're going to be uncomfortable. Go put yourself in a position where what you might perceive as a small amount of economic leverage, friends and family money, a little bit of credit that you've built in your teens and early 20s, whatever it might be, that might not mean much if you live in Toronto or Seattle or San Francisco or New York, but it means a lot if you live in, if you move to Armenia or Albania where $10,000 means a lot more than it does in New York. $10,000 in New York doesn't mean shit. Um, put yourself in uncomfortable places and look for the edge. Look for the places that aren't quite there where you're going to have to stick it out for a couple of years. And then think about what are you going to do with those couple of years when you're not making money hand over fist? You're going to learn a language. You're going to learn about culture. You're going to become part of a community even though you're not from there. Because those are the things that when the tough gets going, you'll be able to rely on for long-term sustainability. Beautifully said, my friend. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, we appreciate course, your time. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode. Chris Shanks is a really inspirational friend of mine. I really like how he's diversified the income streams of his life. You know, he's chosen responsible ways to do it. And I think it's left him in a way better position than a lot of other people down here who have, you know, put all their eggs into the tourist basket. And now with the changing politics, is changing times and, you know, pending economic changes. 
I think it's just always better to try to diversify and, and get various income streams coming into your life so you can continue to do what you want without too much stress. And just remember that if you do want to support Misfits and Rejects, you can support us through Patreon. It's a really cool site that helps artists continue to do what they want and the fans to help support You know, via a monthly donation. You can donate a dollar, you can donate five dollars, fifteen, twenty, whatever you want. It all helps. If you don't have the means to donate, that's totally cool. It'd be rad if you could share Misfits and Rejects with a friend. If you like the message, if you think an episode might inspire somebody who is considering maybe changing their life or going after something they want, I would really appreciate it. And until next episode, ciao. Thank you for listening to Misfits and Rejects. I hope this inspire you to think about your life situation where you're at possibly make a big decision to choose something different for yourself if you're unhappy with where you're at in life. I hope these people that I interview inspire you to go out and spread your wings and try something new, to live a different lifestyle that maybe your whole life people were telling you was the wrong one, but when in fact it's the perfect one for you. And I'll see you next time.